Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I'm just going to grab one of these Bibles. Once again, we want to welcome all of you who are here with us. We want to welcome the uh, online viewers who watch online from week to week. We also want to say welcome to the uh, to the Atsim uh, Congress attendees and um, to those who are organizing uh, ATSIM as well. Um, it's very exciting to, to see you all here and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you as this uh, program finishes. Um, we also want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time who are visiting um, our church and for those of you who come regularly as well. It's good to see you as well. Um, before we begin, I'm just going to invite you to join me for one more word of prayer and then we'll introduce the next topic. Father God, we come before you today, and we just want to thank you that we can explore your word, that we can see with new eyes, that as we read scripture, as we look at uh, what is written, that we just ask that you would speak to our hearts, um, that even after this, that we would search your word to confirm um, the truth that is written there. And I just want to pray that your spirit would speak to us, that your character would shine forth as clear as day, as today we're covering two um, tricky topics. Uh, generally, the topics of judgment and hell don't really portray you in the greatest light. And I just want to pray that as we read scripture, that you would give us wisdom, understanding, and peace um, that comes from understanding these topics. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. So for those of you who have uh, come in here unaware that we are going through a special series, uh, we're going through a special series called Seeing with New Eyes. We're in the second to the last weekend of this series. And so today we're covering the topics of, of uh, judgment and hell. And um, yeah, these topics are generally topics that make us worried. Uh, generally when people step in and learn about judgment, we learn about hell, it's kind of like you wonder, ah, like there are moments where I kind of hesitate because God seems like kind of like a scary God. But today we're going to actually explore scripture and we're going to see what the Bible, like Bible actually says about these two topics. Now to go through a brief recap of last week's uh, talk, we talked about the second coming and we talked about death. And so in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13, uh, 16 to 18, Paul writes about what will happen at the second coming. And I think it's worth it to review uh, as we look into this next topic. So here's what the Bible says. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow and others who have no hope. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So in review, notice here that the dead in Christ are resurrected, then those who are alive and remain meet, uh, meet the Lord in the air, and what essentially happens here is that God comes and fulfills that promise of eternal life and humanity no longer has to fear death. And so the question is, when the second coming actually happens, what takes place after that? What happens after the second coming of Christ? And what we're going to do is we're going to turn to Revelation. 
Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to explore this chapter. And so if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20. And for those of you who have the white Bibles next to you, it's page 1002. Page 1002. And I've got most of the verses that I'm going to cover on the slides, but I still encourage you to read it for yourself. Um, And there are two things that I just want to highlight here. One, what we're going to notice is that through Revelation chapter 20, um, the events that take place after the second coming are mentioned or covered in detail. Secondarily, as we read through this chapter, we're going to see the word judgment used a lot. And what happens is we're going to see that uh, we're going to get a better understanding of how judgment works in heaven. And as we're watching the Bible Project video, it really talks about uh, what happens, what's, what's the mindset of God at the end of time or during this day called the day of the Lord or another concept called the judgment. And so we're going to be exploring that today. Now, as a disclaimer, I just want to say that Revelation 20 is a little bit difficult to understand at first read or at first glance. Um, it, it isn't really written in a logical format, but we're going to read through it verse by verse. Um, and if it doesn't make sense at the end of the talk, of course, please come ask me afterwards. I'd love to have a chat with you. Um, but I recommend that you read through the chapter even after this talk and just kind of like kind of wrestle with it, meditate on it, and just to the point where it makes sense. So I encourage you to read through Revelation chapter 20 multiple times. So there are a few things that happen in Revelation chapter 20. The first thing that I'm going to highlight is that at the second coming of Christ, the Bible says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. So if you're in Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read the first three verses. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. So I'll just stop there. So in the Bible, the word uses this Greek word called abyssos. And that word abyssos can be translated or defined in two different ways. The first definition is um, by using this word called void or emptiness. Uh, A second word that is used or a second way of defining this word abyssos is uh, by calling it a bottomless pit. And so when it says that Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss, This is what the Bible is talking about. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. But what's interesting is that there's a book called the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there are times where this Greek word abyssos is used multiple times, and that gives us a better understanding of what it means when Satan is actually chained or bound. So here are a couple of verses. The first one is actually the account or the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. The earth was without form and void, and that word void is abyssos, and darkness 
was on the face of the deep. So the earth at creation, if you read these verses, it just kind of describes it as this dark, shapeless, formless blob of water, if you will. And that nothingness is described as the abyss. Here's another expl- or here's another usage of the word in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 to 26. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord. So Jeremiah here is pronouncing a judgment that is being implemented on Jerusalem, and as he describes the effects of this judgment, he calls the state of the land an abyss. So if you picture the second coming of Christ, where God comes in all his glory, Basically, what's being described is that the earth is kind of made void. There's this uh, cleansing or this destruction that takes place. And Satan, the Bible says, is bound by a chain of circumstance, if you will. Uh, There's nothing left for him to do. The earth is desolate and he's just stuck on earth. And the Bible says that he's stuck there for a thousand years. So that's the first thing that's mentioned about uh, what happens at the second coming. Now, there's a second thing that's mentioned at the second coming, and that's that those who are not saved rest till the thousand-year period has expired. And in Luke chapter 17, verses 29 and 30, it says, But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so, Last week, we highlighted those verses that talk about what happens to the righteous at the coming of Christ. And here in this verse, it talks about what happens to those who are not saved. And essentially, they are laid to the grave. They are laid to rest. The third thing that's mentioned in the Bible when it comes to events that take place at the second coming of Christ, it says that judgment is is given to those who are resurrected at the second coming. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So notice here in this passage, it says that judgment is given to the saved. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says that, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you, know not, uh, do you not know that we shall judge angels? So here's a question. Why would God give judgment to those who are saved? And if you think about it, for a thousand years, people are going to be wondering, why did certain people make it into heaven? You know, there might be that one person who made your life miserable when you were growing up. And as you're walking through heaven, you turn and you see that person and you're wondering, why did so-and-so make it? Or you might be looking 
throughout heaven for that one influential person who really made that impact on your life. And you just knew that person was such a good person. And you'll ask that question, wait, I don't see them. Why aren't they here? And so the Bible says that judgment is given to those who are saved. And for a thousand years, we'll be kind of looking at why, why God acted in the way that he acted. But if you look at the verse, notice it says that we'll also be judging angels. You know, the Bible talks about this cosmic reality that happens behind the scenes. This cosmic battle that happens between good and evil, between God and Satan. And there's this question of what actually happened here. There's so many times in Earth's history where we really question all the bad and all the evil in the world. And we're wondering, why did God let this happen? And in that thousand year period, God is giving us judgment to be able to discern why certain things were allowed. We will judge the angels. In a way, when you look at this idea, what's being implied is that God is actually also on trial. We get to ask that question, has he been fair? If you look at a timeline, that thousand-year period is marked by the first resurrection. And in this time, we've already seen that at the return of Jesus, Satan is bound for a thousand years. At the return of Jesus... Um, those who are saved are given judgment at the return of Jesus. It marked, it marks this thousand year period or this thousand year time of judgment. The Bible says that the Bible refers to this as the first resurrection. And in revelation chapter 20, verse six, it says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So notice, the Bible talks about this first resurrection. It talks about this first resurrection. It refers to this first resurrection as a blessed uh, event. And those who are resurrected in that first resurrection are considered blessed and holy. Notice that the Bible says, what will happen after that thousand year period is over. In Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 3 it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there's a second resurrection, a time that takes place at the end of the thousand years, where those who are not saved are raised from the grave. So if you look at that timeline, that first resurrection takes place, and those three events take place during the thousand years. Satan is bound. Those who are res those who participate in the first resurrection are given judgment. And then at the end of that thousand-year period, there's a second resurrection that takes place. Notice here, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 9, it says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. 
So notice here, Satan is released from his prison of circumstance. So here's a question. If those who are participating in the second resurrection are deceived by Satan and they surround the city, where does the city come from? If you look in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 21, verses one, uh, verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the city comes from heaven at the end of the thousand years, and the Bible says that Satan gathers those who are in the second resurrection to take over New Jerusalem. And there's kind of like the second deception that takes place. And so the city is surrounded. Going back to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. John continues on with the story. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. We continue on. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So notice what the Bible says about the clothes of, the clothes of earth's history. Throughout the events... That closes history, the word judgment and a concept of judgment is portrayed. So if you look at the return of Jesus, the saved are lost, the, the saved and lost are separate, separated. You could call this a sentencing. During the thousand years, the saved enter a period of judgment, and it's a period where the sentence of judgment is reviewed. Then at the end of the thousand years, God judges those whose names are not written in the book of life. This is the execution part of judgment. But the most important period of this whole thing for me is what happens before the second coming. And if you look, there's kind of like an investigation that takes place or an investigative judgment. And it's a time when we are investigated. And I think this is the, the, the bit that's most relevant to us because this is the time period that we live in. How do we respond in a time of investigative judgment? So let's look at a few verses that kind of highlight how this investigation works or how this judgment works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So notice here it says, in this time of judgment, every word, every action, every, uh, every thought, everything that we do is kind of brought into light. And God judges that which is right versus that which is wrong. Here's another verse that I'd like you to turn to. If you have your white Bibles, go to page 975. And we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Page 975. James chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. 
the Bible here says, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. Now this is a little bit of an interesting verse because you can look at it two ways. It says if you break one law, you break them all. And I think sometimes we can tend to fall into that category of you know when you're doing something that isn't right. And there's kind of like a spectrum of, uh, of right and wrong. And when you take that first step, it's kind of like, well, I've already made a mistake in this one area. I may as well just go all the way because if I'm guilty, I'm guilty of everything. And I, I don't really think that's what this verse is saying, where it's saying, look, if you did one thing, you're just as b- if you if you lie, you're just as bad as a person who is uh, a murderer. That, I don't think that's what this text is saying. I, I do think that there's a variation of um, of innocence and guilt. There's a spectrum of innocence and guilt. But what this is saying is, if you break the law in one area, you are still considered guilty. In other words, you still need salvation. And I think the challenge here, especially for people who are not raised in a Christian worldview, is that if you've never broken a law, a law of the land, there's kind of this question of, hey, I'm not a criminal. Why am I considered a sinner? Because that word sinner communicates criminal. If you take an exam and you score 90% uh, 90% out of 100%, that's still pretty good, right? That's like, what, what's a high distinction in Australia? Like 94%, 93%? Okay, so let's say you get a 94%. That's like, hey, I've done really good. But in the biblical worldview or in this context, if you even miss one, if you miss even 1%, you still need, you're still in need of salvation. And that's what this text is talking about. 1% guilty means I need 100% Jesus. And so that's why this verse is saying, if you break one law, you've broken them all. In other words, you need Christ. So notice here, that Ten Commandment or that standard is the standard in judgment. And so in this period of investigation, God is basically saying, how do our actions, uh, how do our, how are our actions reflected in light of the Ten Commandments, do we match up? And the reality is that all of us have fallen short. And so when you think of this investigation, when you think of this judgment, it doesn't always bring about the greatest feelings of peace. There's more this sense of, oh no, am I going to make it? Am I good enough? Today I made a mistake. God, how do I get over that sense of failure? So let's look a little bit deeper into how judgment is set up and i think that really answers that question of if i don't feel like i'm good enough how do i handle myself so the bible says in first john chapter 2 verse 1 my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous so notice here jesus in this verse is the advocate he's our lawyer and we're going to see why it's important that Jesus is the lawyer. We keep reading John chapter 5, verse 22. It says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So notice, Jesus is the lawyer, 
And if you look at this verse, Jesus is also the judge. We keep reading John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, for God did not send, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. You know, this is the one court system where the lawyer and the judge die for the person who is uh, the defendant. And if you think about that, normally courts are designed to find out if the one who is called to trial is guilty. But that's not how the court system is set up in the Bible. In the Bible, the problem is that we are all guilty and nobody is perfect. So what is God going to do in judgment? Well, God sets up the court system differently. He sets up judgment not to find guilt, but he sets it up to inspire goodness. And that's the difference between the judgment of the Bible and the judgment of, that happens in the world. Notice here, John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So when Jesus comes to earth, the main message that he shares is that there is forgiveness. There is no condemnation. See, judgment reveals that God is merciful. And in that time of investigation, he's looking for people who are going to respond to that mercy. Notice what it says here in Psalm 116, verse 5. It says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. And for me, it's really interesting. When you think of that word righteous, I usually think of people who are doing the right thing or people who can discern between right and wrong. And it's true. God is a judge. He's very just. He promotes truth. He is righteous. But if you look at the reason why God is righteous in this verse, it says he is righteous because he is merciful. He knows how to forgive. He knows how to inspire goodness. That's what makes him righteous. So throughout the Bible, we're told not to judge, not to condemn one another, because we step in the way of that goodness. We step in the way of that mercy. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Romans chapter 2, and verses 1 to 4. This is page 904 for those of you who have those white Bibles. Page 904, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Here's what it says. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same? Now, if you, if you look at Romans chapter 1, it lists all the things that 
these people are condemning. And when you look at the list, there's like really serious crimes, if you will. Like, um, yeah, it just talks about – it gives this whole list of really, really significant sins. And so you would think, okay, if someone is condemning that which is wrong, wouldn't you say that that's the right thing to do? And here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul the writer says, you're doing the wrong thing when you condemn that. Notice what it says in verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Now, there's another translation here that would go like this. The goodness, don't you know that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Now, I'm an 80s baby, and I'll tell you how my parents raised me. The way that my parents raised me is if I know that something is bad, and if I just know how bad it is, then I'll stop doing it. And if I don't know how bad it is, then I'm going to get whooped. And then I'll remember the whooping, and then I'll change my behavior. And so I find that that's very that, that idea kind of permeates society where it's like we're trying to change people, and the way we change them is by punishing them. I don't know if anybody else was raised in that kind of a family environment. Or where someone says, don't you know how bad that is? And I catch myself with my own kids where my kids are doing something, and I'm like, I don't think they know that this is wrong. And so we go through this this talk and I talk to my children. I say, is this the right thing to do? And my five-year-old is like, no, it's not the right thing to do. My two-year-old is like, yes, it's the right thing to do because he doesn't know what I'm saying. He's just nodding his head. <laughs> He's just trying to get out of the talk. And so as I go through that, I'm just, I'm, I'm investigating. Do you know that this is wrong? But you know, Romans chapter two, verses one to four is such a powerful, powerful passage because it's saying, listen, it isn't so much that people don't know that something is wrong. It's that we haven't showed them the goodness of God. Because if you really want to implement change or repentance, then people need to encounter a good and kind God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Notice the majority of that passage highlights people who condemn. And what's highlighted here is that when we condemn people, when we try and punish them for doing wrong, it's actually highlighting that we don't understand the nature of sin. Paul is highlighting when you condemn, it shows that you have not overcome sin for yourself. So that when you're trying to help somebody else overcome sin, they're not able to do it because you yourself have not encountered the goodness of God. See, when we experience mercy, we learn how to give it. But when we don't experience mercy, we can only give punishment. And so here, God is saying, don't step in the way of my judgment. I know how to judge. I'll do the punishing, right? So until that time of sentencing comes, in this period of investigation, show that there is forgiveness. Show that there is mercy. In John chapter 8, there's a story of a woman who's caught in adultery. And if you have your Bibles... There's a really significant story because there's a woman who very clearly is guilty. And in this story, it shows how God responds to this woman. So it's page 860. John chapter 8. And for those of you who have the White Bibles, page 860. Page 
the story is introduced that Jesus has returned from the Mount of Olives. And in verse 2, very early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And he was speaking, the te- as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So back then, your moral life was held into civil account. In other words, you could be punished for cheating on your husband or your wife or whoever it may be. Now, what's really interesting is the setting of this story. When they come to Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in the act, that really puts a question mark on their character. Like, why in the world would you enter into a room where something like that is happening? Like, who says, yes, I'm going to interrupt them? Number one. Number two, how do you know they're practicing adult? How do you know they're not married? Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to know that these two individuals went into the room. You have to know that those two individuals were not married. And then you have to know that they were engaged in activity. And so it's kind of like, it really makes you question, these guys are really messed up because essentially what they're admitting to is we set them up. We set them up and we know they're guilty. So Jesus, what are you going to do? And the story says they've got stones in hand. They're ready to throw them at this, this poor woman. But they're really trying to set Jesus up, right? They want Jesus to either say, to give mercy, give a pass. And if Jesus gives a pass, it means that he's not a good judge because he's excusing wrong behavior. If Jesus says, stone her, they're happy because they get to stone her and they get to see, hey, Jesus, you sentenced this woman to her death. Everybody thinks you're this great person, but now everyone's going to see you're just as bad as everybody else. You're just as harsh as everybody else. So Jesus does this famous thing where he starts writing on the ground. And as he writes on the ground, he says, whichever one of you is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And the story says one by one, people start exiting that courtyard. They start leaving because they realize, of course, everybody has sinned. And what I love about this is that Jesus, or or what Jesus says to this woman in John chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, Jesus asks her, where are your accusers? Does anyone condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. And I love this story because of the balance. It's not that Jesus wants to excuse sin where it doesn't matter, where he's like, oh, it doesn't matter at all. What he's saying is, look, there is forgiveness for you. So I'm trying to inspire goodness so that you can know that there's security. This woman experiences the judgment of God. And sometimes for us, it's really hard to get past the fact that at the end, there is this executive judgment. But in the meantime, there's this message where God is trying to communicate, listen, I'm trying to get you ready for that so that you don't have to worry, that you can have peace, that you can have that sense of security. And so know that forgiveness is provided for you. You know, there's a really important truth in this story where the woman did not know what Jesus's judgment was while everybody else was in the square. She needed to be alone with Jesus before she could know there's forgiveness. 
And I want to encourage you, if you've ever felt guilt, if you've ever been worried about what's going to happen at the end, if there's ever been this sense of uncertainty because of judgment, because of, you know, the Bible uses that word fire, right? If there's ever uncertainty to spend time alone with Jesus, because sometimes when people tell you what your state is, like, oh, you're not good enough. Sometimes it's really hard to tell what God actually thinks about you. And so I love this story because this woman is alone with Jesus and that truth becomes a reality. There is no, there is no condemnation. And now I'll be inspired to try again. May you experience this Christ personally and experience the great peace that is found here. Will you join me in prayer as we finish this first session? Father God, as we've looked at these events that close Earth's history, Father, we see that, number one, you have a plan, and number two, that you, you care for us deeply. You care for us. You want us to know that there is salvation, that there is freedom, that there is forgiveness. And so I just pray that in those quiet moments where we can connect with you, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen.